All right. We don't have a, we don't really have, well, we have a couple of announcements that we'll cover later. And so we'll talk to you a little bit about those in just, uh, in just a bit, but there's really not much jumping in. I'll give you one quick reminder, and that is if, uh, if you're interested in getting some table swag and helping us go on our missions trip, we have these up here for five bucks for students, and you're welcome to come uh, grab one of those and, and pay us for that uh, at the end or midway or wherever you want to. So that's all I got on that. Um, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into our text for tonight, all right? Dear Father, after perhaps for many a busy day, um, with uh, a lot going on on our minds, I would ask right now that you would quiet us and allow us to focus in on your word, allow us to focus in on what you want to say to us, and that through your word you would teach and shape us. Let your spirit be at work in us, um, helping these words to come alive, and uh drawing us to yourself through this. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We are in 2 Corinthians 8 tonight. Midway into 2 Corinthians, and we will make our way into chapter 9 tonight as well. So last week, just to catch you up to speed, we saw Paul calling the Corinthian church to complete a task that had been left unfinished. A task that had started a while ago, Uh, that task was raising a collection, an offering, to give aid to the church in Jerusalem. As we said last week, we don't know the specific circumstances. We do know that around this time that a famine had hit, um, and and it seemed like the Jerusalem church kind of suffered from that. And so we're we're not sure, but we think that may be what's going on. And, and this is something that, that has been on Paul's kind of mind and heart for a while. In fact, if you go back into 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, um, Paul talks to the Corinthians about this offering as though they already knew about it. Kind of, he says, like I said to you before, basically, or in regards to the collection. And so this is something that he's been planning with them since before our, uh, 1 Corinthians even. So it had it'd been something on their mind, and they had at first had a lot of passion for that and excitement for that. Readiness is the, is the term that Paul uses a lot. Um, but then that, that temporary falling out that Paul had with this church... Uh, over some members in the church questioning his authority, questioning his authenticity, whether or not we really ought to be following this Paul guy, um, led to this fallout, and that basically put that offering on hold. And so Paul is now calling them to pick that back up and get to it. So here's kind of a simplified flow of the book so far, just so you can kind of see the flow of Paul's argument and where he's going with things. So it started... With thanksgiving in chapters 1 and 2, thanksgiving over the fact that he found out the Corinthians have repented and that they actually, they're not against him anymore, that they're wanting to make things right. So thanksgiving over that and then an explanation of his travel plans. You remember he says, listen, I wasn't, I wasn't. Um, kind of waffling back and forth whether or not I was going to come to you. I had specific reasons that I had to change my plans and didn't come to you. So that comes in chapter 1 and 2. And then chapter 3 through 5, Paul basically defends his ministry and says, hey, this is what new covenant ministry looks like in contrast to what some of you may be expecting, in contrast to what the false teachers have been proclaiming to you. This is what an authentic ministry looks like. The reason Paul is so concerned, remember, is he doesn't want them to walk away from him and to abandon him because he doesn't want them to abandon his gospel. He doesn't want them to leave that. And so after this defense of his ministry, he comes to this statement in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. So we appeal to you not to receive God's grace in vain. All right, so my ministry is legit. It is authentic. I am sent by Jesus and I am proclaiming the gospel. So I'm appealing to you. Do not reject that. Don't receive God's grace and then push it away from yourselves. Don't don't empty all of that of its power and promise by abandoning what you first came to when you came to me. And so he appeals to them to do that. And then what he's basically given is two two ways for them to demonstrate that they have not, uh, that they're not, 
abandoning God's grace. So uh, do not reject God's grace. Do not receive it in vain. And here's two ways that you can start in that process. Here's two ways that you can so, show yourselves to be legitimate. First, purify the church. Remember he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what does the temple of God have to do with idols? And he's not saying you can't hang out with non-Christians. He's saying that you ought not to share the same kind of values and lifestyle and morals and beliefs as them. So purify the church and complete the collection. That thing that you started when we were on good terms, that thing that we were working together on, let's see that through. This is a way that you can demonstrate to me that you have actually repented, that you've come through. And so this is where we are today, uh, tonight, in the middle of this passage. And like I said, this is three weeks. So we talked last week about it. We're in a little bit of explanation tonight, and we'll talk more about it next week. In tonight's text, specifically what he's doing is kind of giving commendations to these three men that he has sent to them. He sent 2 Corinthians in the hands of three guys, and he sent those to them, and he's going to kind of commend these three guys to the Corinthians and then say, and here's what they're here to do. So let's look at it, chapter 8, starting in verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So he starts with this. We, we, we are thankful to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. You're going to see this word earnest or earnestness pop up multiple times in the text. You actually already saw it several times last week where Paul makes a big deal out of the passion you feel towards doing what is right. And this word here is kind of a combination of the word diligence, like really working hard on something mixed with kind of zeal. It's like a, a passionate diligence. And, and Paul says that Titus actually has the same kind of care for the Corinthians, that he is passionate about working hard for them and working hard with them. It says that God put that in him. And, and so Titus, I didn't have to beg Titus to come to you. He wanted to come to you. He came to you of his own accord. And then he says, and with him we're sending this other brother. And it's kind of interesting. He, he doesn't name the guy. Actually, the other, there's three of them that's mentioned. Titus is, is named. The other two are not. And, and so we don't know exactly who this is. All we know is this, that he is known amongst the churches for his gospel work, for the work that he does for the gospel. And we know this, that he has been elected. That's, it says, I think, chosen or with him. We are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches. Uh, he has been appointed by the churches. That's in verse 19. That word appointed is actually like a technical term for like a vote of hands. Basically, like, elected, the church got together and said, this guy, this guy's the dude we need to send. And so we know that he was famous for preaching the gospel, and he had been elected by the churches to travel with Paul to Jerusalem. So not just to Corinth, but then on to Jerusalem. So, like I said, we don't know who it is. We have some guesses. Acts 20, verses 1 through 4, mentions Paul being in this area of Macedonia and then traveling down to the area of Greece and Achaia, which is what Paul's about to do. So Acts 20 is telling about this specific time in Paul's life. And it mentions that there are three guys that are with Paul that are from Macedonia and that are making their way to Jerusalem with him. So one guy's name is Sopater the Berean, that is Sopater from the city of Berea, which is in Macedonia. And remember, Paul's writing from the area of Macedonia. He's been bragging about the Macedonian churches and their desire to give even out of their poverty. So, Sobater the Berean, and then there's two guys from Thessalonia, Aristarchus and Secondus. And so, it could be, most likely, it is one of those three guys. We just don't know for sure. Um, and then he lists his twofold purpose for the collection. Here is why Paul says we are doing this collection. First, for the glory of the Lord. And when Paul uses the word Lord, he's usually almost always referring to the second person of the Trinity. For the glory of Jesus is why we are doing this. And second, we are doing this to show our good will. To show our good will. And I think a little bit of background is just kind of necessary on that. So the first major controversy to take place in church history 
happens uh, around 49 BC or 49 AD, AD 49, I guess is how we'd say it. Um, so, which would be about 15 years before Paul is writing this letter here, 15, 16 years. And the first major controversy in the church is, can Gentiles be in? Are they allowed in this? Because for all of like biblical history, the only people who are part of God's people were the Jewish people. And, and so that's all they knew. Israel was God's people. And when God sent his son, he sent him as a Jewish man. And all of Jesus' first disciples were Jews. And so that's all they knew. And, and of course, it was possible for like a Gentile to convert in that they could, be, they could be circumcised and begin to obey all the Jewish dietary laws, basically become Jewish to be in. And so the question was, can Gentiles not be Jewish, stay Gentile, not practice all these Jewish things, and still be a part of the church? And there are a lot of people who said no. It doesn't make sense. That, why would we change what's been true for so many years? And then there was a number of people who said, yes, of course. Paul was at the forefront of that, pushing to be for the Gentiles to be in without having to change. In fact, Paul, um, anyone who says that in order for you to be a part of the church, you need to be circumcised, you need to start taking on the Jewish way of life, those were fighting words to Paul. And Paul gets angry about those things, and you can see it in his books, and you can see it in his preaching and acts. He gets really big on that, and so um, he, he's not anti-Jew. He, he himself is Jewish, and so he loves that, but sometimes I believe his words could be perceived as that, that he was trying to undermine Judaism, which he wasn't. He believed Christianity was kind of built on the foundation that Judaism had laid, that it was the fulfillment of it, but that he was anti-Judaism, and that that would maybe even mean that he was anti-the Jerusalem church. And so Paul takes pains, and you can see this in Acts, and you can see this in a number of his letters. He talks about this, this offering that he wants to give to the Jerusalem church to go help them out. I think it's his way of wanting to show that he is not against that church, that he considers them brothers. And how I think Paul has in mind, how beautiful is this, that these Gentiles who are now included in the church can show themselves to be brothers and sisters by caring for their Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and so Paul really does want to do this for the glory of Jesus and to show his goodwill. Um, read verses 20 through 21. It says this, We take this course. So what he said is, This unknown brother has been selected by the church to travel with us to Jerusalem. And now he's about to explain why. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Paul is painfully aware that traveling around to all these churches and taking up collections could cause a little bit of suspicion. To, to go to all these people and say, hey, give me your money, I'm going to take it somewhere. Um, could look a little bit odd, especially remember we said that the Corinthians and a number of people in the first century world were fascinated by this group of people known as the Sophists, these really um, articulate speakers who were known for being able to just kind of weave together these amazing words, but they were also kind of known for like gathering a group around them and then after some time kind of milking those people for all they're worth and trying to get a lot of money out. Kind of, they're, they're kind of like the televangelists of the first century, okay? And, and that was kind of what they were aiming towards in a lot of ways. And so uh, Paul could be kind of confused with that, especially Paul, even though he has a right as an apostle for the churches that he serves to support him. So like he had a right, he says, when he went to Corinth for them to basically support him and, and pay his way there for him to live and, and eat. And he says he refused that right in Corinth. Instead, he worked himself to pay his own bills. And and he did that um, for some particular reasons that we'll get into, but that could actually also look suspicious. Okay, so what's the catch with this guy? He comes in here and he says he wants to help us. He says he wants to do all these things, and he's not charging us anything for his services. There's got to be some kind of catch. And so it would be easy for people to wonder if this offering that's for Jerusalem is really going to make its way to Jerusalem or not. And for that reason, Paul has this kind of... Uh, this method in which whatever church he goes to, Thessalonica or the churches in Macedonia decide they're going to give to Jerusalem. He says, great, I'm so glad you're giving now. Select one person from your church who's going to travel with me. And so they can attest to the fact that it makes it there. And he's going to expect the same thing from the churches in Achaia, where Corinth is. That I want you to set somebody, he actually said this in 1 Corinthians 16, select someone who's going to go with me. 
because Paul wants everything to be above board, Every, wants everything to be above reproach. This is his practice. And he says this, because we want to be honorable in the Lord's sight and in the sight of man. That's kind of interesting. Not just do we want to be honorable and above reproach so that Jesus, who sees our hearts, knows that we're, we're doing what's right, but we want men to think that too. We want human beings to see that as well. We're going to get into that in just a bit. Uh, verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So now he introduces this third brother, who again, he does not mention his name. And then he says, verse 23, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker. As for our brothers, this is actually a really weird sentence in the Greek. It has no verbs in it in the Greek. So like literally, more literally, it reads something like this. Whether about Titus, my partner and fellow worker, whether our brothers, apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ, or it could be translated, if Titus, um, yeah, if Titus, then my partner and fellow worker, if our brothers, apostles of the churches, and glory of Christ. Um, it's kind of oddly constructed, but what he's saying here is, if anybody's got any question about Titus, anybody wonders if this dude has the credentials or authority to do this, let me tell you, he is my partner and my fellow worker. And so he has my credentials. Because if anybody's got any doubts about these brothers, let me tell you, they are selected by the churches and they are there on their behalf and they are the glory of Christ. They are bringing glory to Christ in these things. So basically, do not question them. Do not um, fail to submit to what they're asking you to do in this. And then he says this, that I want you to go on and prove me right. He said, I've, I've, I've been talking about your love. I've been talking about what you're going to do. So prove your love to these guys by the way you bring this offering um, before them in this, in this time. Um, and then we move on to chapter 9. But this is important. We're not changing themes. And, and here's just kind of, we talk about this from time to time, but it's, it's important to remind you this. One of the things, actually the most important thing for being able to understand God's Word is reading it in what? Context. We read it, if you want to know what a verse says, you've got to read the verses before it and the verses behind it. Reading in context to see the flow, to see what they're meaning. And, and um, one of the most beneficial things for Bible study is chapter and verse divisions. And one of the biggest hindrances to Bible study is chapters and verse divisions. Um, helpful and convenient because they help us know rather than me having to say, all right, we're going to sort of the middle of 2 Corinthians tonight. Um, I can say 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and you know where to go. So it's helpful for that reason. But it's, it, can be, um, it can be a hindrance because we tend to read these as though we get to chapter 9 and now we're on a new topic. Now we're talking about something else and that's not, that's not the case. Uh, chapter divisions were not put there by Paul. They weren't put there by the Corinthians. Chapter divisions were not added until the 13th century. So 1,200 years after this is when they get written in. The verse divisions weren't added until the 16th century. And so it makes a difference. We just did a, a podcast. Sunnybrook's got a little side podcast called Consider This that just tackles different issues of theology and life and faith. And so we just did this three-part thing on the role of women in the church and specifically tackling 1 Timothy 2, there's this kind of crazy line in there that says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must remain silent. And that's kind of a controversial verse. And, and we spent three weeks talking about that. One of the points that got brought up is sometimes we fail to understand that verse because right after it comes chapter 3 and everybody goes, okay, new thought. So chapter 3 has nothing to do with this. When the truth is, chapter 3 is in complete alignment with that and you need to see what's happening in chapter 3 to get a better view of what's happening in chapter 2. And so do not, don't get confused by chapter divisions. Use them, pay attention to them, but don't, and, and the little headings up top that tell you kind of the subject of what the passage is. Those especially, those can be helpful. But don't, don't think that Paul's moving to a new thought. Those got added in way after Paul. Even this is a great example. 
We did 614, and you notice we went all the way to 7-1 because 7-1 actually fits way more with chapter 6 than it does with the stuff in chapter 7. Um, so, into chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So the idea behind that word superfluous basically means like over the top, beyond what is needed. He's saying, I know, I'm going over the top. I don't even have to tell you about bringing up this, this offering, this collection, because I know how much you want it. I know your readiness. The word readiness was like a technical term for a, what an army does to prepare itself for battle. It was a technical term that was used in military language. I know that you are prepared. I know that you have readied yourself for what is next. You've readied yourself to give. And I've been bragging about how you were ready to do it last year. In fact, he said, that's part of what encouraged the Macedonians so much. They said, man, if, if the Corinthians, if the Achaeans are doing this, we want in on this too. Verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gifts you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul says, I'm sending these guys to you because I've been bragging about you and I've been saying that you'll be ready and it would be pretty embarrassing for for me and for you if we show up and you're not. If your hearts weren't ready, if you hadn't taken any steps towards seeing this true, that'd look kind of bad on both me and you. And he says, and I don't want this collection, I don't want this offering to be taken as an exaction. I want it to be a willing gift. The word for exaction is actually pleonexia, and it's literally greed or covetousness. Every time the Bible uses this word, it's talking about covetousness. And so he says, I don't want it to come as greed, which doesn't make sense. I don't want it to come as covetousness. doesn't make sense. What he means, though, is I don't, I don't want this offering to be something that, that is pried out of your fingers because you're greedy about it. I don't want you to give it and the whole time be thinking, I wish I could keep it for myself. I want, you to kind of, I want you to have the kind of heart that wants to give. I want you to have the kind of heart that is excited to give. And so I've sent these brothers to prep you so you're not caught off guard whenever I get there so that you can be ready to give. So a couple closing thoughts as we wrap up this first half. The first is this. One might wonder if Paul is not manipulating the Corinthians with these words here. And if he's not playing two churches against one another. Because he says these things like, hey, I've been bragging about you that you're going to give, so you know. And and he says things like, your zeal, so I told the Macedonians about how you're going to give, and that got them really excited. And so now I'm telling you, hey, the Macedonians are going to give, so I hope you get excited. And it almost sounds like he's kind of working these two against each other. And he says to them, I want you to prove your love in this. I want you to prove your earnestness. Does that not sound a bit manipulative? Does that not sound like he's playing these two churches against each other to try and boost the offering a little bit? I would suggest two answers. First, I don't think when Paul is saying, I've been bragging about you, I don't think when he's saying, I know your readiness, I don't think that he's blowing smoke. I don't think he's just kind of um, trying to butter them up. I think Paul really knows and believes that this is true of them. Even even if, it might, if they might need a little bit of encouragement, even if they might need a reminding of it, I think Paul is going to know, I know who you really are. I know, what you're, I, I know that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, and the old has gone and the new has come. I know what your real identity is, and I know that you are ready to do this. The Holy Spirit at work in you. So he's not, he's not flattering them. He's not buttering them up. He's saying what he believes to be really true and reminding them of that. Second, and this is really important to catch, we hear these words when Paul says, hey, the Macedonians gave, so you probably ought to match it too. You, I want He says in the previous text that we read, I want to prove your earnestness by matching it against theirs. That sounds crazy. Comparing, let's see how much you can give compared to them. That's not exactly, again, we, we talked about the total's not what he's after, but let's see if you have the same kind of generosity as them. And that sounds crazy to us. 
But I believe um, part of the issue is that we hear these words through very Western, postmodern ears. Let me explain that. It is difficult to overestimate how much we are affected by this new Western, postmodern idea that a person's faith is an issue of personal, private beliefs. That is, my beliefs are my business. It's something that I believe privately and I don't take into the public sphere. And I live those beliefs out how I choose. So, I mean, if, it, if, if being a Christian means that I go to church, that's awesome. But maybe the whole church thing isn't for me. So I kind of do it this way. If being a Christian means I try to obey this all the way, that's great. But, but that's not really my, how it kind of works best for me. That's not how I feel most connected and spiritual. I kind of take and choose maybe some of the love passages and try to follow those. And, and that is a very postmodern way of thinking. Even maybe you could say modern and individualistic view of religion. And you may go, well, that's, that's not me. But I, I'm telling you, um, probably nobody in here goes to a church um, that opens up the hymn book every week and sing, sings along with an organ. Like you, you go to a church where you select the music that fits you best. You go to a, so you have that ability to build your faith a little bit around you and your taste and preferences. And I'm not even saying that's bad. Don't hear me. That's, 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 there's something that's, that's all right and okay about that, but there's something that can be very unhealthy for forever. People didn't, people didn't choose their church based on whether the preacher, like they kind of got his sense of humor, or whether they liked the music or anything like that. You went to church because it was the church, and so you just went there. You didn't build any of your faith around you. Um, it wasn't a personal, private thing that you were allowed to do. In the first century, and I would say biblically, I would say Christianity... In Christianity, your faith is not a personal, private thing. It is a communal commitment and is expressed in public actions and behavior. That it is, is something that I do along with a body, not privately and individually, and it is something that gets lived out. I, this idea that I can believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in God. And yeah, me and, me and God are good. I, I believe in Him. I totally trust Him. Without actually trying to live out what God has called you to, that's a new idea. And it's a false idea. It does not fit. Christianity is one that we practice together and we practice. We don't, we don't just say we believe things. We live those things out, which means as I am practicing my faith, this idea of none of your business has no play in my faith. So, Drew, are, are you giving to the church? It's none of your business. Hey, what I do with my money is none of your business. Well, that's, that's not actually true, biblically speaking. <laughs> hey, Drew, are you? Look, are you... Um, you staying pure and holy in your relationship with your girlfriend. Hey, what I do in my own time is none of your business. That's not true biblically. It is your business if you are the church. And the church is called to discipline me. And the church is called to hold me to purity and to holy standards. And, and so Paul has no problem saying, hey, we're in this together. And you know the Macedonians are giving. I want you to do it too. He's not playing them off each other. He's just saying, this is how we do this stuff together. So here's the second thing, just to kind of note from this, and it's related. We make a big deal about how we should not care what people think. And so does Paul, actually. In a number of places, Paul talks about how I don't care what people think of me. I don't care how you judge me. I only care what Jesus thinks. And yet here, he seems to really care what people think of him. He takes all these steps to do what is honorable, not just in the sight of Jesus, but in the sight of men. And he wants to show his goodwill to the church in Jerusalem to demonstrate this stuff. He takes pains because he wants, he cares what people think of him. And he cares what people think of the Corinthians. And he says to the Corinthians, you ought to care what people think of you. Prove your love. Don't be embarrassed when people show up because you weren't ready. You should care what people think of you. So which is it? And if you're already guessing that the answer is both, how do you know when? How do you know when you're supposed to care and when you're not supposed to care? How do you know in which situation around what people? This is what we're going to talk about in just a couple minutes when Scott gets up here. We'll take a quick break and then we'll jump back to it. All right. So I want to start with a question. <clears throat> I'm going to start with really two categories, and I want you to pick which one you think you're in. So, one category is, <clears throat> I care what people think. 
<clears throat> the other category is I don't care what people think. Okay, so I want you to raise your hand if you lean towards one or the other. Raise your hand if you lean towards the I care what people think category. Okay, maybe more than half. And then raise your hand if you are in the I don't care what people think category. Okay, maybe a little less than half. And then there's always the third category of people that don't like to raise their hand. <laughs> yes? I'm usually that guy. I hate it when every, almost every Sunday Jim's like, raise your hand if you... And then two seconds later, raise your hand if you... And I'm just like, I'm done. Listen, I feel so violated as an audience. Um, anyway, no. So, I, I'm not a big fan of raising my hand. But I, if some people... Or like, ah, I kind of, you know, maybe I lean towards both, or I identify with both, or I don't, I don't know. And then there's others of us that go, oh, I know which one I am. I'm definitely this one or that one. Um, I fall in the I care what people think category. So I want to tell you about my failures. Um, so here's how, here's how this kind of impacts me. I, I don't even know where it comes from, because my wife and I are, are different. She doesn't care what people think. And she doesn't really care what I think a lot of times, too. And she won't be listening to this, so it doesn't matter. Um, but I think I get it from my mom. I see, my, I see it in my mom probably the most, more so than my dad. And it, it really, there, and sometimes it can have this, this overall, and those of you who really land in this category know what I'm talking about, sometimes an angst or like, a, like an on-edgeness about how I, how I interact with people. Because, because sometimes I'm trying to read... I'm trying to read people to, to know how I'm supposed to act based on how they might be reacting, and, and I'm reading all kinds of things, right? Misinterpreting all things all the time, you know, according to my wife, all the time. Um, but, but it's true, I mean, and maybe sometimes I'm interpreting rightly, and so sometimes it can be a benefit to, to read people and go, oh, this is not a moment to gloss over something, or this is not a moment to joke about something because I can tell something's going on. And whereas maybe others would just blow right past it, just completely miss it. So sometimes it can be a benefit. It really can be to, to, to really try to discern and figure out what's going on. Other times it's like I'm just trying way too hard and I just need to be myself, right? So um, that's how it sometimes comes out. Sometimes it causes uncertainty and anxiety, honestly, when you care too much what people think. Um, sometimes I can spend too much energy uh, trying to replay conversations and interactions that I have, and why did I say that, and why did I not do that, and you know all those kinds of things, and it's just wasted energy that I, I'll never get back ever, ever, ever again. Um, and then, and then there's times where I, I'll torment myself about you know certain things I did or didn't didn't say. Uh, I made a comment in staff meeting on um, Monday that as soon as the words came out, I wish I could pull them back in. And, um, and so we were, I don't, I'm not even going to tell you what we were talking about. Uh, I don't even want to it, admit it to you all. Um, but it, wasn't, it, was, it was mentioned and said in a way that sounded like I basically, I basically dismissed something that people struggle with as if it's no big deal, right? And I know there's several people in, our, in this room in our staff meeting that struggle with that very thing that I just dismissed as a joke. And you go, man, I wish I could have that back. And I, on the way to lunch, I was in the car with Alec and, and Drew, and I said, so how many of you felt bad about what I said? Felt bad for me for what I said, you know? And Drew's like, yep, I felt bad. I felt bad for you. Um, and it's true. That, so, so those kinds of moments you can have and just and then think about and dwell on and torment yourself about and beat myself up over. Uh, in college, my wife and I were reading, actually we were, in a, we were in a small group with Jim Johnson, his wife, and then two other young couples. We read a book called, um, it was by John Orberg, very impactful. The Life You've Always Wanted. Anybody read this? The Life You've Always Wanted by John Orberg. Okay. It's kind of like spiritual disciplines for dummies. Um, it's kind of how I see it now. But it was really, at the time, it was very eye-opening because he, he spoke on a real um, down-to-earth level and, I, and I, I needed that. And I remember him describing two, two types of people, beaters and glossers, those who beat themselves up 
over every little thing and those who gloss over their issues like they're no big deal. And my wife and I quickly knew who we were, right? We found ourselves. And that has been a part of a conversation that we've had ever since. Like, oh, see, you're a beater. There you go again. Or, yep, you're just glossing it over. Um, and so th- those kinds of things really, like, affect me. And then, but, you know, here's, here's the, the truth. Those of you who fall in this category, um, after 41 years of life, I'm really beginning to, and actually I have for a little while, learning how to, like, turn that voice down ridiculous. It's dumb. Don't listen to that voice. It doesn't matter. Um, so uh, um, the very first Thursday night back this semester, okay, it'd probably been like six or eight weeks since I had preached. And I was completely out of sync. And so I'm sitting right there. I'm getting ready to come up and Alex is doing his thing. He's making announcements. And, and I, as soon as I get up, he's, he's done. He's walking off and I have the stage and I'm walking over and I see this this thing, oh, this thing that I'm wearing, it was all balled up here on the table. You probably remember this. It was all balled up here on the table. And I forgot at that moment, same moment, as I'm walking up, in a matter of seconds, I'm going, I've got to untangle that thing, get on my shirt. I forgot to write everything on the board I was supposed to write. And then I open my Bible, my notes fall over uh, out on the, on the floor. In, in, in a matter of seconds, I'm going, holy crap. I don't know what to do, so I'm scrambling. You guys remember, I, like, gave you something to talk about just to take the tension off of me so I could untangle this and write something on the board and get going. So that, that moment, right, probably if that, that moment would have happened six, seven years ago, I might have quit um, <laughs> on the way home. I might have called Drew and be like, Drew, I don't know what I'm doing in ministry. I really haven't, I don't even know if I love Jesus. I think <laughs> I, think I should just quit. Um, tell my wife that I'm not coming home. I'm going to a hotel, I'm going to check myself in. I mean, I, I would have went into a spiral of death. Um, but God, in His grace, has allowed me to go, okay, yeah, that was pretty dumb. You should have thought through that. You should have been a little more organized. You should have, you know, thought through the things you needed to do. But it's, it's not a big deal. All, all of you, all the people that were here that first night and have never come back because of it, so be it, you know? Um, <laughs> I'm learning to be these people that don't care what people think. I can do it. Uh, I just have to tell myself over and over, don't care. Um, <laughs> but it's true. So how would you say, what would you say the world, if, if the world was going to lift up one or two of those, which, which one would they lift up? Don't care. That, that, that was, that was kind of my first guess too. And so I Googled it. Um, should we care what people think or something like that? And I came across this 10 reasons why you shouldn't care what people think. Okay? So I'm going to read some of them. One of them is this. Or here's 10 of them. Uh, I don't know if I'll read all, 20, oh, all 10. Here's 10. Uh, it's not their life, so it's none of their business. Okay? That's the first one. It's not their life. What are you laughing about over here? You sure? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worry about that later. I'm just saying it. I'm going to have nightmares. I'm not going to go to sleep. No. There's just something wrong with my... No. Anyway. Here's the second one. They don't know what's best for you. Okay? And it's another one. What's right for someone else may not may be completely wrong for you. Um, here's another one. It'll keep you from your dreams. That's my favorite. It'll, you know, caring what people think will keep you from your dreams. Because Disney says to follow your heart. Um says, uh, this one actually, I believe, because you're stuck with the end results no matter what, that's actually true. Right or wrong, what, you know, if someone influenced you to do something, you got to live with the, the decisions. That one I agree with. People's thoughts change on a regular basis. Life is simply too short to care what people think. Um, you reap what you sow. Now they're quoting the Bible, so I, I, have, to, I have to believe that one. Um, <laughs> others don't care as much as you think. In other words, you're, you're, you care what people think, and they're you're changing what you want because you think they care about you and they really don't care about you. The hard truth is that it's impossible to please people. So kind of they're operating from this position that when you care what people think, it's because you're, you're trying to please somebody. You're, you're, you're trying to you know, win favor from them. And I think that's probably true. I think this, the world would, would, would say that, you know, what, what, what you really should do is think for yourself. 
Like, that's what you should do. Don't care what other people think. You should learn to think for yourself. So our staff is reading a book right now by a guy named Alan, Alan Jacobs called, <clears throat> called How to Think. And it's a really, really good book. It's a short book, seven chapters. I re- highly recommend it. Um, because it's, it's really challenging the way we think and, and the way we interact with people and how we interact with other people's ideas, um, really. And, and one, of the thing, one of the points he makes in this book is that it is impossible for you to think for yourself. Like, none of us think for ourselves. Because every single one of us, every single thought that we have comes, is birthed from another thought. That's birthed from another thought. That's, that's influenced by the people around you, the culture around you, a set of beliefs around you, a worldview around you, a set of a, a framework of, of living around you. So um, it's, it's really like impossible to think for yourself. Nobody has an original thought that just comes from nowhere. All of it comes from somewhere. It's influenced by something and someone. And, and so Jacob's point is, like, it's not think for yourself. It's, it's recognizing what thoughts you have that aren't really yours, that you don't have any ownership of, that you don't have any, any really stake in, that you can't really defend. It, it's, those are the kinds of thoughts that you should wrestle with and think through before you, you know. He, he said, he says, and I thought this was really insightful. He says, when, whenever, well, he says, you rarely ever hear somebody say, it's about time they, they started thinking for themselves. You rarely hear that when the person they're talking about starts to believe a completely opposite idea than the one who said it. Usually when, when someone says, ah, it's about time you started thinking for yourself, it's because they started thinking the way you think, or I think, whenever we say that. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty fascinating, and I think that's pretty true. But, you, you know, on the Google search, right after 10 reasons why you should not think or not care what people think. There was four reasons why you should care what people think. Here's what they are. First one I loved. People who don't care what other people think are generally awful human beings. (laughs) And it has sociopath and Donald Trump underneath it. (laughs) So raise your hand if you care. Sorry, if you don't care what people think. No. So you are a sociopath or you're going to become like Donald Trump. That's kind of, that's where you're heading. Caring what others think makes you a better person. Just automatically, when you care what everybody thinks, it makes you a better person. Um, these last two, I kind of probably agree. We're not the center of the universe. That's true. And then the other one is you miss um, a chance for valuable feedback, which actually I agree. So which is it? What should we do? Should we care what people think or should we not care what people think? Um, Paul, in our text, as Drew pointed out, he seems to care what, what they think. He cares about the integrity of the ministry, and he cares about specifically this gift, this, this offering that's being given, and he wants them to know that he's going to great lengths to make sure that it's done with integrity, because he cares what they think. He, he, wants, them, he wants them to like him which is really fascinating. In fact, there's several verses in, in 2 Corinthians where he talks about this. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the references and I'll just read one of them. But 2 Corinthians 4.2 is one. 2 Corinthians 6.3 says this, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 2 Corinthians 7.2 Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So Paul is going to great lengths, as we've talked about you know, a bunch here, to, to, to prove to them why he can be trusted and why they should turn back to him, turn back to the Lord. Um, but Paul in other texts doesn't seem to care what people think. If you saw the Facebook post, Drew, Drew quoted from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, listen, you guys can't judge me. I can't even judge me. No one can judge me except for God. It's like, whoa, Paul, okay. And Paul, Paul seems to have this, this really um, high understanding of the authority to which God has given him to be a, a minister of the gospel and to present and to 
plant churches and to preach the gospel. In Galatians 1.10, he says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? And if I were still, t- still trying to please men, I would not be, uh, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If, if you know Galatians at all, Paul just goes off. Paul does his normal kind of introductions. Hey, greetings to you. And then he launches right in. Like, what is your pop? You foolish Galatians. That's like almost one of the first things he says to them. And so you have Galatians and 2 Corinthians is these two letters where Paul is, in one hand, he gives a rip what they think and he rips into them. In fact, he, he throws Peter under the bus. Peter was a pillar in this church at the time and Peter's, Peter's um, influence was huge and Paul goes after him. And so if you don't know why, you need to go read Galatians. And then Paul goes after these other guys, these Judaizers, Judaizers. And I talked about them a couple weeks ago um, because they were wanting to change the gospel and, and add circumcision, all these things Drew mentioned and talked about. So, so you have these two, these two books where Paul in 2 Corinthians is trying to, hey guys, listen, here's all the reasons why you should trust me and like me. And then in, in Galatians, he gives a rip. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.4 As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not, not as pleasing men but God who examined our hearts. Jesus kind of carries the same line. Jesus doesn't seem to care what people think. Um, there's a great couple verses at the end of John chapter 2 that you should go read. And, and read to understand what, what does Jesus think about people. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Luke 6.26 Woe to you when men speak well of you, Jesus says. Woe to you when men speak well of you. Even Jesus' enemies um, knew that Jesus didn't care what people thought. In, in Mark chapter 4, these Pharisees come to kind of trick him and, and trip him up and like puff him up so they could cut him down. He says, Teacher, we know that you are true and care for no man, for you do not regard the position of men, but truly teach the word of God. Right? And then they throw this question they think is going to trip him up. And he doesn't fall for it, but, but they picked up on something about Jesus. He doesn't seem to care what people think. All the religious established the leaders, he didn't seem to, to you know, get them all worked up and, and go after them. And yet the Bible says that it's good um, that others think well of you. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth, favor better than silver or gold. Paul in Romans 15 says, Now we who are strong ought not to just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Um, so Paul in another verse is 1 Timothy 3.7. So, so like there's these, these, these moments in which Paul and Jesus and others don't have this care about what others think. And then, and then the Bible seems to say, like, you should value what people think. And, and you should care that others speak well of you. And, and that you should care about your reputation. Again, um, so which is it? Now, I, I think this all impacts us differently. And for some reason, I don't have my notes. I must have lost one of the pages. But um, I had written down, here's how this affects, here's how caring what people think affects certain people. I read, and I told you some of my junk, um, you know, but those, who, those of us who care too much what people think, um, we, have, we have an arrogance because the, the truth is, when, when, I, when, it, when, I, when I say I care what you think, it can sound like I really care about you, but really I care about me. Like, I care about my reputation. I, I care about you thinking highly of me and not thinking like an a, like a absent-minded professor who has no idea what the heck he's doing up here, right? Which is kind of how I felt um, that first night. And so because, I, because I, I care so much about me, it bothers me when others might think less of me. And it's an arrogance, right? It's a pridefulness that, that is there, but it just it looks so nice and sweet and considerate of others. And it's, and it's really not. It's really, 
it's really a selfish selfishness. It's a self-centeredness. And I got to talk to somebody who, I got to interview somebody um, who has the reputation for not caring what people think. His name is uh, Ryan Vincent. And, and we had a good talk because he said, you know, um, he talked about, you know, his arrogance is, is a little more out there. It, it's, it's apparent, you know. Um, when, when you don't care what people think, you, you just kind of run over people and um, you, you kind of blow by them. You don't take their feelings in consideration. You kind of have this reputation. He said, but, you know, but there's also a cowardliness that sometimes uh, because, of, because you know you can just blow right past people or, or run over people, you, you, you sometimes can be quick to do that so that your ideas aren't challenged. And he said something really interesting. He said, you know, bullies never grow up. I thought that was kind of interesting. He said, because bullies, they're, they're never challenged. And, and the only way you grow and change is when your ideas are challenged. And you go, oh, yeah, that's, that's a dumb idea. I can't believe I thought that. I need to change that idea. I need to grow. I need to, and he says, when, when, when you just have this ability to run over people, you never allow others to challenge your ideas, and therefore you never really grow. I thought that was kind of interesting. And so he said, that's, it's cowardly to act that way. So, you know, those of us who care too much and those of us who don't care at all, we, we have the same issues. They just, look, they just look different. So, Paul, um, again, like, like Drew said, it's probably not surprising that the answer is, both you should care and you shouldn't care, but how? And, and what, it, what is the, the way in which we do this? This answer probably wouldn't surprise you either. Because for Paul, the answer was he cared and he didn't care whenever the gospel was enhanced, whenever, whenever Jesus was proclaimed or preached or glorified, or whenever people were drawn to him. I mean, that's, that's what it was for him. Paul was able to keep the gospel the main thing for him. The gospel is the main thing. So the reason, the reason that um, it makes sense and it explains why Paul cares what the Corinthians think is because, like we've said before, he doesn't want his witness for the gospel to be tarnished. He wants, he wants, um, he wants the gospel to be proclaimed. He wants it to take root in them. He wants it to transform their life. And so they, he knows that if they think less of him, they'll think less of the gospel. But it also explains why Paul doesn't care when he goes against people who are wrong, who are trying to change the gospel, who are, who are, who are um, um, undermining his authority. Because in 2 Corinthians, he, he'll actually go after some people. He'll threaten to come and essentially like spank people. He kind of takes on this fatherly figure and like, I'll, I'll come with a rod kind of a thing. And, and it's because he, he knows that he's going up against people who are coming from this, this perspective that is, it is um, undermining the gospel and undermining the ministry that, that God had established through him. It also explains, and this is kind of an interesting verse, in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, Paul um, says something pretty fascinating. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and he says, they, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there are a group of people, and I don't even know how this happens, how this works, but there's a group of people who are preaching the gospel, and they're doing it hoping that somehow it will afflict Paul, who's in prison. And Paul says, great, I don't care. I don't care if, how it affects me, as long as the gospel's preached. And yet to the people who are trying to change the gospel by adding circumcision and all these other rituals, Paul says, I hope they just chop it off. That's what he says in Galatians. Um, and so it's just fascinating. Again, it just shows you what Paul cares more about. He keeps the main thing, the main thing, which is the gospel. Now, um, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I have to say it you know, to, to understand why do we keep the gospel the main thing? Okay, so let me just say a couple quick, brief things on this. Um, we keep the gospel the main thing because Jesus is the promised king. 
from the beginning. He was promised from the beginning. He is the point of all of Scripture, and everything points to Him. His life, His death, His resurrection, His coming um, back again. And, and with Him, this kingdom that will, establish, that will be established, that will conquer all other kingdoms. Okay? Not just like other nations, but like your kingdom and my kingdom. The things that we're trying to build here on this earth. Our reputations, our, our careers, our financial status, our legacies. It's a big word among people once you get over 40. Um, is what kind of legacy are you leaving? Because it's really, really important, important that whenever I leave, people like love me for generations after generations. Um, I'm pretty sure in about five generations or less, maybe three generations or less, no one's going to remember me. And, and I'm fine with that. Um, so that's why we keep Jesus the main thing. Here's, here's where it gets kind of tricky, I think. Um, but first, let me, let me read a couple of verses of Paul, because this is, this is just so telling of Paul's, of how he kept the main thing. Um, so you can write these down. Philippians 1.21, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20, big one. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Big verse. And this one's probably one of my favorite verses. And unlike Jim, I really mean it. Um, actually, I think this is one of Jim's favorite verses too. Acts 20.24. 20, have you read Acts 20.24, 20, lady? It's an underliner. Here's what it says. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only... I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's, that's how you know Paul's main thing was the gospel. And he had this ability to keep the main thing the main thing. And so this guy named Soren Kierkegaard, you may have heard of him? Soren Kierkegaard. Makes you sound really fa- fancy when you say his name. He wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And it's this idea that when you only want one thing, then it's really easy to, to um, see how everything else, you see everything else that gets in the way of that one thing. So this is why some of the most successful people in the world um, are successful. In fact, Warren Buffett has this quote where he talks about this. He says, the most successful people in the world say no to everything else that they're not about. So, so if Michael Jordan is about basketball and being the most famous and most popular and most whatever um, basketball player in the world, then it's no, along with some natural gifts and some abilities and those things, but that drive, that desire to be the best and to be known as the best so dro- dro- drove him that it caused him to go like pretty insane. Like he, he is, he, I mean, he had a nickname, or actually not a nickname, but a, a, a sign, a code name whenever he would travel. His name was Yahweh. Uh, and that is how he would be, want to be known so that whatever. So you have this laser focus. You have this clarity about, or this, this per- focus on one thing, and, and Kierkegaard's idea is that like, there's a lot of hindrances to, to really just wanting one thing. Um, but Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. And I, and I think, I think the, the truth about Paul's life and clearly about Jesus' life is that they were, they were focused on what God wanted them to do. Um, and so, the question is, how? How do, we, how do we keep the gospel the main thing? How do we keep um, what, what Christ wants for us, His, his life and His mission, um, the main thing? So I have three, three practical things that I want to mention and then give you some time to kind of reflect on. Maybe what, 
what a next step would be in one of these three things. Okay, here's the first one, and these aren't real canned answers. These are these are I think specifically for you. Um, well, actually, they work for anyone, but I think I, I, I thought of you when I when I when I thought of these. First one is integrating the truth of the gospel into your current life and and season. So. Is it okay that you spend more time on schoolwork than it is in the Bible or at church or evangelizing the world or whatever it is that we think we have to do? Um, so, you know, we, we have this tendency to think, oh man, you know, when I, should, I should just stop going to school. I should just read my Bible all day long and I should like evangelize all day long and I should be discipling people. All they don't actually probably none of you actually think that, um, but we have this tendency to 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 go extreme like that. Um, and the reality is, like God has you in a season of life right now. He has you in school. He has you learning about things that you need in order to do the things He's called you to do. He has you um, processing your, your your own identity in Him and understanding who you are and what it means to to be you. Um, and what he may have gifted you to do in this world. And so you're in a really crucial time where you're wrestling with these things and learning these things and you're trying to figure out direction and all that stuff. And so keeping the main thing, keeping the gospel the main thing means it it just, it it brings focus to why you're studying OCHEM or whatever it is you're doing, why you're in a lab or why you're in this silly group project that, or you're the one that has to do all the work. Or maybe you're the one that's not doing all the work. That could be somebody here too. Um, I, just, I just end up talking to those of you who, who end up doing all the work and you're complaining about it. That's usually who I talk to. Um, the rest of you are actually pretty excited about it. Um, but anyway, so like, why am I in this group? Why am I in this class? Why am I here? What am I, what am I doing? How, how does this all fit? And and you don't have to have your whole life figured out in order to, to know that, okay, God, this is where you have me. And because of who you are and because of what you've done, because of who I am in you, this is how you want me to handle this class. This is how you want me to study for this test. This is how you want me to um, think about the people that I'm sitting next to in class as I'm paying attention to my professor and going, okay, Lord, are these people the kind of people that you want me to... Um, share the gospel with or interact with or share my life with or you're saying okay God you have me here help me help me to see how the truth of who you are flows into my everyday life okay that's the first one is to integrate that truth into your life Um, that's gospel centered life that's what we talk about here the second one is is a daily focus on the main thing I think this is this is where the rubber meets the road. This is actually the other one up there, life in Christ. This one, life in Christ is what sustains the, the I think the other ones. It's what fuels your desire to live a gospel centered life. It's what it's what actually brings um life to your commitment to community. Is is to have time and I and I hesitate to put in daily because I don't want to put undue pressure on some of you because I know just like me you struggled with, maybe you struggle with, I'm not spending time in the Bible every day. I, I struggle with that. I would say for the ma- majority of my adult life, I struggled with a consistent time in the Word. Okay, I'm getting older and I'm starting to figure some things out and starting to realize, you know, I can get up early, coffee helps and all those things. But, um, but if you don't have a regular time where you are encountering the God of this Bible, and He's speaking to you from His Word, or time where you are um, on a walk with the Lord and you're allowing Him to speak into your heart from truths from His Word, or truths from that, that He may speak to you from His people, like from a small group context, or from church on Sunday, or, or whatever. But if, if you're not being reminded on a consistent basis of the gospel and how it um, affects your life, then it's going to be really easy to get off course. 
and to make five other things the main thing. And the Bible talks about a duplicitous mind is, is, is when you start chasing after other things, you get pulled in so many directions, and guess what happens? Anxiety, frustration, fear, all those things just start mounting because we were not meant to chase after more than one thing. We were meant to chase after Him. We were meant to have Him be our main thing. Third one is a community on mission together and accountable to each other. And, and, and that's what Drew was talking about. Like, this is what we need. We need a community of people to be around, to, to interact with, that are on mission together, that are holding each other accountable. And, and so, those three things. How are you doing at interact, integrating the truth of the gospel into your current life and season? Okay, that's one, one question. Second question is, how are you doing at um, having a consistent focus on the gospel, on what Jesus has done? on who God is. Um, how are you doing at being involved in a, a community that's on mission and, and holding you accountable? And so, based on those three questions, reflect for a little bit as the worship team comes, wherever they are, and gets up here um, and so that they can lead us. Spend a few moments just kind of reflecting on those three questions, and maybe there's a next step that, that um, God may be asking you to do. Turn the lights off. Maybe you're ready. Maybe you're ready. Just go ahead and start with it.